Well, good morning. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Praise the Lord. I, I do want to welcome you here. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to preach on an Easter morning after all that regalia of music and, and choir. And so I, I just pray that God would use this morning to lift us heavenward and take us upward. And uh, as we look to our resurrected Savior, and that's what we want to do this morning. We want to lift up Christ. And so why don't you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And as you're turning there, I'd like to begin. Since the beginning of time, mankind has been asking Job's question, which is this. If a man dies, will he live again? Job chapter 14, verse 14. And from the earliest human societies, there was a belief that there is life after death. The ancient Babylonians believed this. They did this and believed that afterlife was a sad and doleful existence. The ancient Egyptians believed in the afterlife. They believed it by the way they prepared the dead. Socrates maintained that life continued after death. The American Indians believed in a, quote, future hunting ground after this life was over, end quote. Brahmanism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam, all maintain that man continues to exist after death. All these religions differ in how there is an afterlife, but all agree that there is an afterlife. But Christianity's answer Christianity's answer to Job's question is not found in a philosophy, not in a system of rules, not in a system of works, but in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ, who is the answer to the afterlife. Jesus Christ's resurrection is foundational to Christianity. You see, Christianity stands or falls on His resurrection. Notice I said it stands on His resurrection. Oh, heaven would be so empty if Christ was still in the grave. What would life be like if we spent an eternity without Christ? Life after does not matter unless Christ has a real resurrection. Why? Because all that Christ promised is dependent upon His resurrection. If He is not raised, then our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. Christianity becomes then a deceitful religion, a dead religion, and ultimately a damning religion. But is the resurrection real? Can we know for sure? We've certainly sung about it, but is it? How can you know for sure? Are there any evidences that tell us that there is a resurrection? Well, in John chapter 20, let's read verses 1 to 10 and then we'll pray. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, 
They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they went to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to where they were staying. Why don't we pray? Father, help us to see what you see and help us to glory in what you glory. That is of your Son who was raised from the dead. Father, I pray that you would help us all this morning to see from your word the glorious resurrected Christ. I pray that this morning you would use your word to lift up the Savior so that he would be marvelous, that he would be wonderful, that we would be captivated by him and that we would be taken up. And I pray, God, that your work through the preaching of the word would accomplish your ends and that you would bring life this morning. Do a miracle and raise the dead, not just in Christ, but in people this morning. Raise people from the dead of their sins, from deadness to life. And so, Lord, no man can do this. No preacher can do this. No words and wisdom of man can do this. And so, God, I ask for your help. Oh, Spirit of God, would you come and be with us and, and help us understand your truth and awaken those that are asleep to the reality of the afterlife and the judgment to come and that they would flee to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've read about the tomb. We've read in this passage about the tomb. And so I want to anchor our thoughts around the tomb. And so I want to show you three lines of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ outside of the tomb, inside of the tomb, and beyond the tomb. Three lines of evidence from outside the tomb, inside the tomb, and beyond the tomb. And so the first evidence, the first line of evidence that I want to point out is from outside the tomb. It's in the first two verses. The first two verses. And the word that I want you to think about as we're looking at this is observation. John is setting up a scene for us like a detective scene and he wants us to observe He wants us to make observations that he sees. We are told that Mary Magdalene has come early to the tomb. And what she's observed is that the stone was taken away from the tomb, already taken away from the tomb. We need to observe that the time of the day is early dawn. It's early in the morning. You can't quite see exactly because of the darkness of the the morning. The sun hasn't fully come up. So Mary doesn't go inside the tomb. The only thing that Mary Magdalene could see was that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Now why is the stone rolled away from the tomb a line of evidence? Why is that a line of evidence for the resurrection? Here's why. Because the purpose of the stone rolled away is not to let a body out, but to let eyewitnesses in. The point of the stone rolled away is not to let a body out, but it's to let witnesses in. 
You see, a resurrected body does not is a resurrected body. It doesn't need doors or stones in order for it to be raised. You, you see this. John makes a point of this in his text here in verse 19. Jump down to verse 19. John wants to draw our attention to this. So he says in verse 19, So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Eight days later, verse 26, John makes another point of this. Again, they were inside that room and Thomas was with them and Jesus came. Notice what he says, The doors having been shut and stood in their midst. A man, the man Christ Jesus, he comes in. says the same thing, Peace be with you. John is making a point that the doors were shut because Jesus could pass through walls, pass through. The stone here is not to keep and allow the body out, but to let us in. It's to let us in. It's to let people in. Dear friends, God Himself has opened up that tomb. He's opened up the tomb to let the world know that death could not hold Him. God opened that tomb and He has nothing to hide. He wants the world, He invites you and He invites the world to come and take a look. My son, my precious son is not in that tomb. And so Mary, unsure of this, she runs. Look at in verse 2. She runs and she meets the two leaders of the disciples. She meets Peter and then she mentions this other person, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That is none other than John. That's how John refers to himself in this gospel He always doesn't call himself John. He refers to himself as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so she runs to them. And this is her conclusion after what she's seen, what she's observed from outside the tomb. She hasn't gone in yet. And her conclusion is this. They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. The body's been stolen. That's her conclusion. The stolen body of Jesus. In fact, the stolen body of Jesus was one of the four earliest theories of why the body was not found in the tomb. It would be worth our time to look at these. The first, in, the first of these four theories of, to explain away the missing body of Jesus, Jesus, these are the four. The first one is known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory. We don't really use that word swoon, but it's like you're fainted. This states that Jesus actually did not die, but that he swooned from sheer exhaustion. And therefore, at some point in the early morning or in the middle of the night on Saturday, the cool air of the tomb woke him up and he revived himself and he escapes from the tomb. That's the, that's the theory. Now, this could easily be refuted if you think about this theory because if a man who was scourged earlier at Golbatha by the Roman soldiers under Pontius Pilate beaten, scourged where his backside is shredded to ribbons, blood is bleeding out of him, then he is nailed to a cross after carrying that wooden beam of 75 pounds across his shoulders, then hung on a cross to die for hours, and then he's examined by a Roman soldier to confirm that he's dead. They're about to break his legs, but instead they pierce his side and blood and water flow out, indicating there was hypovolemic shock to his system where fluid gathers around the, the sac, around the heart and around the lungs 
And then furthermore, this half-dead Jesus would then have to undo his own wrappings, move the large stone wall, overpower the Roman soldiers, walk the seven miles to the road to Emmaus, talk to the two disciples, having not eaten or drank anything for three days. It's not the swoon theory. It's not the swoon theory. The second one is the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory. This says that all of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were not real, but actually hallucinations. People actually did just saw a figment of Jesus. It wasn't the real Jesus. But this could easily be refuted. How could so many people, especially 500 at one time, experience the same picture of Jesus, the same conversations of Jesus, see the same movement of Jesus in the same room with Jesus? How could a figment, a hallucination, invite someone, touch my side, examine my hands, examine my scars, as he did to Thomas? Hallucinations are very rare and occur in individuals, never in mass across up to 1.500, according to 1 Corinthians 15. It's not the hallucination theory. The third theory is the wrong tomb theory. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And so the argument there is they went to the wrong tomb and they went to an already empty tomb. That's not where Jesus was buried. Well, if the disciples went to the wrong tomb, why don't they ask the two men who buried him? Because the two men who buried him weren't necessarily the most low profile of men. The two men that buried him, go back to verse 38, was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. He's a disciple of Jesus, a secret one, but now he's no longer a secret disciple. He's let everyone know he's a disciple. And then the other man is Nicodemus in verse 39, who had come to him by night. This is the same Nicodemus that came to him by night earlier in John chapter 3. These two men are not low-profile men. Nicodemus was only the member of the Sanhedrin. He was called the teacher of Israel. If there was any wrong tomb, they could confirm and ask them, and say, where's the tomb? Not only that, they could actually find the right tomb and prove there's the body. It wasn't the wrong tomb. They found the right tomb. It's not the wrong tomb. Lastly, the, the theory of the stolen body. This is the one that Mary herself came to the conclusion of. This is the oldest one, and this is the one that's actually mentioned in the Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. This is the theory that has been spread from the very beginning. And it was spread by the Sanhedrin who were colluding with the Roman soldiers. And I want you to notice the stupidity of this plan of the stolen body. Look in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 28. It says this, And when they had assembled with the elders and took counsel together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, Here's what you're, here's what you're to say, Roman soldiers. You're to say, His disciples... That's Jesus' disciples. They came by night and stole him away while you were all asleep. Do you see the foolishness of that? How, how would you know the disciples came by night if, if, if you were all asleep? How, how, would you, how would you know? That's not the smartest plan. Furthermore, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier guarding that tomb would not fall asleep. It was his job to maintain and that seal on that tomb that Matthew talks about. The body could not have been stolen. 
Dear friends, the body was not stolen. It was not the wrong tomb. It was not a hallucination. It was not swooning. The open tomb is God's doing. Matthew 28, 2 says, an angel opened up that tomb. He rolled away that stone and made the world look in. He wants the world and invites the world to go in. You see, God has nothing to hide but everything to show. He wants the world to see my son is not in the grave. But we need to move from inside the, from outside the tomb to inside the tomb. What is going on inside the tomb? Go, go back to Matthew, uh, John. Let's go inside the tomb in verses 3 to 18. So we go from observation. Now the key word I want you to think about in this text as we're inside the tomb is investigation. Investigation. Verses 3 to 10, let's, let's read there. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. In the tomb, were, and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. So John is just kind of telling everyone that he's faster than Peter. And, they came to the, and he came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came in, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment, and I want you to see the progression of the investigation. There's a progression of the investigation because first there's three words that John uses of how they look at the scene. At how they look at the scene. Verse 5, it says John, the first one to go in because he's faster, remember that. He's probably younger and he's just telling everyone he got there first. Peter's older. So he got there first. And in verse 5 it says he saw. He saw. That word for saw is this word blepo. It means he took a glance. Notice, John doesn't go in the tomb yet. He's just from the outside. We're not sure exactly why he doesn't go in. Maybe he's not sure. But he, from the outside, he looks inside the tomb and he takes a glance. It's a cursory look. He just notices something. He's noticing that something exists. It's just a cursory look. But then in verse 6, notice the movement of the look. It goes from John, who just takes this cursory look and then in verse 6 and Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and then he saw this time Peter is inside the tomb and now he uses that word saw in English he just says saw but it's actually a different word in the Greek it's this word theoreo which is where we get the word theorize or theory here Peter is starting to go beyond glancing beyond just looking now he's actually going deeper and he's starting to theorize what is going on here he's looking with deeper observation he's looking at the tomb he's inside the tomb and he sees the wrappings and he's thinking wait a minute if they stole the body why would they unwrap the body why go through the hassle of unwrapping the body if the grave robbers were jewish why would they unwrap the body because it would be a violation of of touching a dead body and being defiled for seven days according to Numbers 19.11. So if the Jews did that, why would they do that? If the Romans stole the body, why would they have any interest in, in stealing the body and further propagating the, the resurrection myth? Why would the, Why would the Romans steal the body? If the Greeks, why would they unwrap the body 
and remove the very covering that prevents the stench of a corpse from surfacing into the air. Why would they do that? So Peter is theorizing and looking at the, the linen wrappings, and he's looking not only at the linen wrappings that are in the same place as where the body was, and then he's looking at the face cloth, which, is, which was furthered into the tomb. He didn't see it. He had to go past the linen wrappings and had to go further in. And the, and the face cloth itself was like folded and put away on its own. Not lying, not lying with the linen wrappings, but on its own, as if it was folded neatly and put somewhere. And then in verse 8, then John, the other disciple, he never refers to himself as John, he comes in and it says he enters the tomb. Now, John is no longer outside the tomb. He enters the tomb and then it says he saw that word, a different Greek word. That's the word Iden, which means to perceive. At this point, the eyes of John have come to perceive this is what's going on. He sees the same evidence as Peter, the linen wrappings, the, 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 the head uh, covering. He sees the same evidence and he's come to this conclusion. The only way for the grave clothes to remain exactly where they would be would be if Jesus passed through the linen wrappings. It's as if Jesus rose while the wrappings remained. Remember that the, the Jewish bodies, when they were embalmed, they were just like the mummies. They would wrap them up. And then to hide the stench, they would put up 75 pounds to 100 pounds of spices. It's very different from the mummification of the Egyptians because in the Egyptians they would take out massive organs, the heart, the liver, the lungs. They would take out those organs and stuff the body with spices. But with the Jews, they didn't do the organ stuff. They just wrapped the body. And so what John is concluding is that it's as if he went right through it. It's as if he rose and went right through the grave, the grave clothes lying there. And it says that he believed in verse 8. It says he believed he believed that Jesus rose. He believed that Jesus rose. And then in verse 9, what's amazing about his belief is that it says in verse 9, for as, they, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What, what's going on is he's come to believe that Jesus rose without any scripture informing his mind about the resurrection. Remember, when John wrote this, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. The scripture that he's referring to is the Old Testament scripture. So John hadn't made any connections yet about the Old Testament, about a, a Christ who's going to rise again on the third day. He hasn't made any of those connections. Any of those connections about a prediction of a Christ that's going to be raised on the third day. So that's Peter, that's John inside the tomb, but then there's also another person that goes inside the tomb, and that's Mary in verses 11 to 18. Mary also goes into the tomb. And she does her own investigation, verse 11. The, the focus now of the narrative moves away from John and Peter and moves solely on Mary. And let's read verses 11 to 18. It's a simple narrative and let's just read through it. But Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And so as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's now looking into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. She's convinced from her outside observation. But now she's investigating on the inside. They've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. 
when she had said that, she turned around. Somehow, maybe the angels motioned to her or not quite sure, but she somehow turns around and then she sees Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Stop. Jesus is a pretty big man. That would tell us probably that Mary was a woman of heft. She was probably a bigger woman, able to carry a human body, or just in absolute desperation, she was willing to carry the body of our Lord. And Jesus said to her in verse 16, Mary. Just hearing her name, she turns and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Right after that word, she hugs Jesus and does not want to let him go. And Jesus has to tell her, stop clinging to me, for I have yet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but to go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So here is Mary, and she is just elated because of what she's seen. She's seen the resurrected Christ. She, her tears of joy move from sadness to joy. Because what she thought the body was stolen is actually not stolen, but Jesus is indeed alive. What's amazing in this, in this passage is that who is the first person that sees Jesus? It's a woman. A woman. John, God, is wanting us to think, wanting us to know, I should say, that the first person that would see the resurrected Christ is a woman. And not just any woman. A woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. John doesn't introduce her in the gospel. She doesn't introduce who, who, who Mary Magdalene is. Why? It's because her reputation preceded her. Her reputation was so lowly. We have to go to Luke chapter 8 and find out who Mary Magdalene is. She was the one who was possessed by seven demons. She is one who had a troubled past. And the one that the Lord would reveal himself was a woman whose testimony could not held, be held up in a Jewish court. A woman of low reputation. But our God is unafraid of any human court. God's not afraid of any human court. God doesn't care who He reveals Himself to. He reveals Himself to whomever He wants to reveal Himself to. God is unafraid of furnishing all proof that He has risen, so He chooses this lowly woman. This woman, unashamed, honoring her and letting her know that I am indeed the Christ. I am indeed the one who who calls out to you by name. I am your shepherd. And she recognizes the voice of her shepherd when Jesus says, Mary. And she turns and realizes it's the voice of my shepherd. You see, the investigation occurs in the tomb to furnish all proof of a resurrected Christ. You see reason and rationality practiced. The resurrection is not this blind leaf of faith God wants you to exercise reason and rationality. Examine the linen wrappings. Examine the head piece. Examine the face cloth. Examine all of that. And use reason and rationality. Not only reason and rationality, but the resurrection also allows you to physically see and physically touch and experience the resurrection. Mary experiences this with great joy. But there's one final piece of evidence. And this is probably the strongest evidence. It's not one outside the tomb. It's not one inside the tomb. But it's the one that's beyond the tomb. 
It's the one that's beyond the tomb. Look at verses 19 to 23. And this is where we'll end here in this last section, beyond the tomb. And the key word here for beyond the tomb is not observation. It's not investigation. But here it's about transformation. Transformation. In verse 19, we read this. So while it was evening on that day, that same resurrection morning, now it's the evening time, on the first day of the week. First day of the week, same first day of the week as in verse 1, that indicates it was Sunday. Remember the Jews, they didn't use days, names for the days of the week. week. They numbered them, they enumerated them. First day of the week would be Sunday. And then it says, while the doors were shut, where the disciples were, here's what was happening for fear of the Jews. The first thing I want you to notice is the panic. There's a panic. John is emphasizing the doors are shut because they were scared to death of what they what might happen to them. They're in the upper room, probably the same upper room that they rented earlier in the Last Supper with Jesus, and they are scared to death. They are in a panic. They're terrified because they've seen what has happened to their master. They've seen him being crucified by the Jews, forcing Pilate's hand, and they're thinking they're coming for us too. They're coming for us too. The, the text of Scripture that they may have remembered was verse of, was John 15, verse 20, where it says this, Remember the word which I said to you, Jesus said, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So they are in a state of absolute panic. But then notice what comes next. There's peace. There's peace. Jesus comes in while the doors are shut. And Jesus comes in and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Remember, remember where they're hiding. It's that upper room. It's the same city where they saw their Lord crucified. They're not in some remote location hiding. They're in the very same city where they hunt, where they murdered Jesus. And so they know it's just a matter of time before they are hunted and found out. And so they're scared. And so Jesus says, Peace. Peace. Peace be with you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus gives them a word of peace. He loves them by giving them this word of peace to comfort his sheep who are afraid. And he calms them. Peace be with you. Thirdly, Jesus gives them proof. Look at verse 20. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Sometimes they need people need proof. They need proof that Jesus really rose from the dead. And Jesus, knowing their panic, he wanted to show them proof. I'm the one. I'm not a figment of your imagination. I'm not a hallucination. I am the Christ that you had spent time with. I am the resurrected Lord. And notice what happens when they know that it's not just any stranger, it's not any person, but it's Christ. What do they experience? It says they experience great joy. They experience joy in verse 20. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Isn't this the real meaning of joy, Christian? The real meaning of joy is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of Christ. That's the real meaning of joy. It's not removal of trouble. It's not the removal of your trouble, but rather it's the presence of a person. And think of where they are. The Romans are still going to go after them. 
the Jews are still going to go after them. Their problems have not changed outside those doors. What's giving them peace is the person that's inside those doors. It's Christ. Christ's presence gives them joy. What is outside your doors? What's outside these doors? When you leave here, what's outside that may cause you trouble? What is it that's outside that may cause you trouble in your life? Maybe you've somehow walled yourself in and there's trouble and you may need to tell yourself, I, I don't have joy. Maybe you've forgotten that Christ is with you. Now, we don't have the physical Jesus here, but we do have the Spirit of God in us as Christians. We have the Spirit of God in us and He mediates the presence of Christ. He lets us know that Christ is indeed near. Now, I may sound Pentecostal saying this, but you can feel the presence of Christ. I I don't say this too often. I don't want to sound charismatic, but you can feel the presence of Christ because you can experience trouble and your trouble won't go away. I have experienced some trouble in my life. And I've asked the Lord to remove those troubles, but He has not. But what He does do is remind me that He is with me. That He carries me. He walks with me. That I'm not alone. That He's with me through my troubles. And I feel joy in the midst of them. Because I have Christ. Too many lies have been told that when you have Christ, your problems will go away. No, they will not. They will not. They will remain. Your troubles will no longer be purposeless. They will be purposeful. I know I know. Dave taught earlier today. I wasn't there, but I know what he taught because I gave him the notes. <laughs> but one of the texts about the sovereignty of God is Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. What that means is that your trials, your troubles, He would not allow them unless it pleases Him. He will not allow any trouble that you encounter. He will not allow any problems that you will have, Christian, unless He sees that there's pleasure for Him to see and do in your life through it. There's a purpose for our troubles. When you're an unbeliever, you experience trouble and you have no idea why that is happening. It's just happening. It's random. It's because of some political issue. It's because of the president. It's because of financial issue. No, no, it's not. God is in control of everything. He does whatever He pleases. And sometimes He may bring trouble your way to remind you, where do you go when you are in trouble? What are you depending on? Where do you find your hope? Is it in this world? Jesus says, find your hope in Christ, my raised, my risen Savior, the Christ who is, has death, has no hold of Him, but trust Him. Trust Him. Jesus' presence gives us joy. Fourth, notice what else Jesus tells them. He doesn't just give them a, a, a proof of who He is and letting them know about His presence, but also He gives them a plan. He gives them a plan in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I have work for you to do. What are we to do while we're here on this earth, Christians? What are we to do? Here in this verse, Jesus is giving us a plan. You're to go out. You're to go out just as the Son was sent out. You're to go out. 
This is the great commission in, in John's version. This is the same great commission in Matthew 28, go out to all the nations. Here it's in very concise form. And Jesus is saying it to the disciples, saying, you're being sent out. I am sending you just as I have been sent out. That's the plan. What else are we to do while we're on this earth? We're to go out to the nations just as Jesus went out, just as he was sent out. And what are we to tell them? We're to tell them about this Christ. You know, what's amazing is when you do this, when you actually do this as a Christian, when you actually tell people about Jesus, it's amazing. That's when you feel the most joy. When you do what God tells you to do, when you obey His Word, that's when you feel real joy. When you obey His Word, when you submit to Him, when you submit to His Lordship, when you submit to His Christ, when you obey Him, there is joy. It's difficult, but there is joy. And so He tells him, here's the plan. Go. Go out. Go out. Send out. Now what are we to do as we go out? What are we to do? How are we able to do this work? Well, in verse 22... Not only does He give them a plan, but He also gives them power. He gives them power. Verse 22, And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes, and as a result, they receive the Holy Spirit. You know, this is a picture of what was coming. This is a picture of the Spirit that would soon descend from Pentecost. Because to do this work of telling people, they will need power. And that power becomes theirs because Christ is raised from the dead. This is resurrection power that they're receiving. Dear friends, the Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is impossible. And to live this life, we need power. Who in their right mind can say, it's not that bad. The Christian life is not that bad. That, that person is probably not a Christian. As a Christian, you will face many trials. And so what we need is power. We need resurrection power. And the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit who is now given to these disciples so that they will have power to do this work as they're being sent out. That they're being sent out. As they're sent out, what are they to do? What are they to do as they're sent out with power? Look in verse 22 and verse 23. God gives them a proclamation. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What, what do these verses mean? What do these verses mean? It doesn't mean that the disciples can forgive people. It doesn't mean that the disciples can retain and prevent forgiveness. What it means is that Jesus is able to forgive. You speak of Jesus, tell, tell them about Jesus who's able to forgive them of their sins. And the way people are forgiven of their sins is that they bow their knee and repent and, and follow Christ. That's how they're forgiven of their sins. And this is how you know forgiveness is retained when they don't do that. When people don't bow their knee, that's how you know they're not forgiven. But when they follow Christ and believe on Him, and you tell them that message, when you tell them that proclamation, the message is a good message because God is able to forgive you of your sins. This is the message. Tell the world that Jesus is alive, that He's conquered death. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and because God raised Him up, that means His death is able to raise you up. He was raised from that cross. He was raised from that place of torment where you and I should have been. And in exchange, He gives us His, right, His righteousness on our behalf so that when God looks at us, He does not see our sin no, any longer. He sees the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. 
And so this message of proclamation is possible for His disciples to do because of the Spirit's power. And from that moment on, the disciples' lives were transformed. They've never been the same. They've never been the same. They were radically transformed. These scared disciples, these fearful disciples, begin a ministry of proclamation that sets the world on fire. Peter, the fearful and cowardly man, becomes this mighty preacher of Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 2. Turn to the right of your Bibles. Go to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you how these specific instructions that God gives to them were fulfilled exactly. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 24. He says this. This is Peter's sermon. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, I would have stopped there if I was Peter. I would have stopped my sermon right there. But he goes further. He says, You nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. This man delivered up by over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. Who is he talking to? Who is Peter talking to? Remember the people that was outside the room that he was afraid of? This is who he's talking to. The Romans. The Jews. The ones that were going to kill him. And now he's standing up to them. And he's telling them. He's telling them this message of a resurrected Christ. The one that they nailed, they put to death, but God raises him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. How could Peter proclaim such a message? You know why? How? Because Jesus removed the panic. Jesus gave him peace. He gave him proof that Jesus was alive. He gave him resurrection power. He gave him a plan. And he gave him a proclamation to give to people. That's exactly what is happening to Peter. And not just Peter, but the rest of the disciples. Peter and the the disciples were completely transformed. How do you explain the birth of the church? How do you explain at this moment the church explodes? And by explode, I mean literally explode. Look at verse 41. After this sermon, after this very bold sermon by Peter, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Why were so many people getting saved? Because so many people were wondering, this Christ that has been raised, I'm going to stand under His judgment. I have nowhere to run but to Him. I'm going to run to Him and be saved from the, the penalty of my sins. I want to run to Him and be forgiven of my sins. I want to run to Him so that I would be right with God because of what Christ has done for me. I cannot sustain the wrath of God on my own. I need a substitute. I need someone to take my place. And so Jesus takes our place on that cross. And so they run to Him. And so 3,000. And the way Peter would preach, the way he would preach with, with such power, no one would preach with such power 
unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. Who would preach with such power if that man is still in the grave or if that man was stolen or if the wrong tomb was found or if it was a hallucination or if any of those other false theories? The only answer is Jesus rose. This is resurrection power that gave Peter such boldness to proclaim and preach the gospel. Dear friends, three lines of evidence from outside the tomb, from inside the tomb, and from beyond the tomb. Now the question is, where do you fit in all of this? Maybe you're looking, well, that's not fair. They saw Jesus. They saw him, his body. It's not fair. They have evidence. They have the wrappings. I don't have any evidence. I will believe if I see Jesus with my own eyes just like they did. I understand that. I understand that temptation to go there. Let me tell you, did you know that Jesus never appeared in his post-resurrection body to an unbeliever? He never did that. In all the appearances of Jesus, he always appeared to disciples. He never appeared to an unbeliever. He never used his post-resurrection body as proof that I'm alive and that you can now believe in me because I'm here. He never did that. He always appeared to disciples. In fact, he warned, don't do that. He said, don't do that. Don't. The resurrection body is not proof for you to believe because you don't need the resurrection body to believe. Go to go to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 16. Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. We read our Bibles here. So we want to have you turn to your Bibles. Luke chapter 16. This is a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so there's a picture of hell. What's happening in hell where you have a rich man and a man by the name of Lazarus and there's a conversation that's taking place and the rich man is being condemned whereas Lazarus is not in hell. Actually, he's in the bosom of Abraham in safety. And so Lazarus is, uh, the rich man is suffering. He's suffering. And so he's asking, I have brothers. I have brothers that need to be rescued. So in Luke 16, he is pleading with Abraham to tell his brothers. Let's back it up to verse 27. And he said to them, Then I'm asking you, Father, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they may not come to this place of torment. The rich man is dying in hell. He's burning up in hell, and he's saying, Warn my brothers. They need to see a, a man from the dead come to them. But verse 29, notice what Abraham says. But they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Only then they need to see a miracle. They need to see someone from the dead and only then will they be saved. Verse 31, he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Faith never comes from seeing the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. That's how faith comes. And let me tell you the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says in Acts, our final passage, and then we'll close here. Acts chapter 17. This is what the Word of God says. I'm going to steal someone else's sermon for my sermon. I'm going to steal from Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17. This is what he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has been patient. But now, God is declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What's that proof? What's the proof that he has furnished to all men? Well, he's furnished proof from outside the tomb. He's furnished proof from inside the tomb. He's furnished from, proof from beyond the tomb that Jesus is indeed alive. God has given us all the evidence that we need. God has furnished all the proof that we need. Jesus has been raised to demonstrate that death is not the last enemy. He, has raised, he was raised as God's acceptance of his sacrifice for our sins. He was raised for our justification, but there's also one more reason why he is raised, and it's the one that we always overlook. It's the one that we overlook. He was raised and has been appointed to become judge. Jesus has been raised so that he would be judge over the living and the dead. He will stand one day to judge the world in righteousness through a man that he raised from the dead. Oh, dear friends, Jesus' resurrection means everything. He is alive right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He wants you to believe in His Word. That He has spoken to you through the voice of a man who is stumbling along through His notes, but preaching God's Word. And God has answered Job's question. There is life after this one, but it's not just life. It's eternal life. And you will no longer die, but live forever, because you will be with Jesus if you believe. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word you speak to us. Oh, what, what, what further proof would we need? Even if Jesus walked in this room, many would not believe. If Jesus came here and showed us his wounds, showed us his sides, even then, people may not believe. Instead, what you tell us to believe is your word. To believe in what you have said, this proclamation that forgiveness can be found, this simple proclamation that forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ. We don't need miracles. We don't need visions. We don't need dreams. We don't need special numbers. We don't need special notes, signs and wonders. You say an adulterous and wicked generation seeks for a sign. There will be no sign given except for the sign of Jonah where Jesus has been buried on the earth and on the third day he would be raised. That's the only sign this world will ever need. And so, Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that they have not bowed the knee to you that you would help them to see that Jesus is indeed risen and that they would place their faith in him and trust him with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. Save them from their sins, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.